the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello and joining you from Berlin on Monday, February 20th, 2023. A year to the day from the Winter Olympics, finishing in Beijing with Norway atop the medal table, having scored a record 16 golds. This will become tenuously relevant later in the pod. My name is Daniel Freeber. I'm the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast, in which we will hear about how the wind did a fine Tadej Pogacar impression and decimated the peloton in a first stage of the UAE Tour, in which the defending champion is not competing. We'll revisit the same rider's scorched earth pogcineration of the Ruta del Sol in the deep south of Spain. And most significantly, we will voyage to the extreme north of Europe to meet the buccaneering team boss who will lead a Viking invasion of the Tour de France in July. Helping me to do all of that today is a podcaster who embodies the rugged resilience of the ancient Norsemen, shares their complexion, hails from a similar latitude or the location known to podcast listeners as Not Watford. He claimed recently that he had seen the Northern Lights, although conceded later that he meant the illuminations in Blackpool where he was visiting his in-laws. <laughs> it was our aha moment when he returned to the podcast a couple of weeks ago. We're talking away. I don't know what I'm to say. I'll say it anyway. Lionel Burney, how are you? How are wow. you after your illness today? Well, I'm recovering rapidly, Daniel, fortunately. Uh, I think I'd have been a DNS this morning and possibly a DNF this afternoon. But as we approach early evening, I'm feeling okay again. Well, you weren't a DNF this morning because you participated in the interview that will form the, the main part of today's podcast. Um, I did indeed, yes. Uh, are we going to reveal who, who it's with? It's with uh, the boss of not only... Would you believe it's with a Norwegian? Would the, would the listeners believe that it's with a Norwegian? It's with uh, Jens Haugland, who is the boss of the Uno X cycling teams, men's and women's teams, and also the company itself, which I only recently discovered, actually, on their elevation to the World Tour, Uno X's unmanned petrol stations in Norway and Denmark. Lionel, in that rather convoluted intro, as all of our intros are convoluted, or they certainly have been since I've been at the helm, um, I mentioned the UAE tour. Now, were you too bed-bound and sick to watch the UAE tour today, or did you catch any of that entertainment? I was, um, I was horizontal, actually, which meant that I was able to watch from the start of the TV broadcast to the end of the stage, opening stage, crosswinds. From the beginning, we gather, I didn't see from kilometre zero, but uh, when they went across to the action, the peloton was split into pieces, wasn't it? There was a big front group and a much smaller second group. And then it was like, uh, well, it was like the old accordion, wasn't it? Groups going back and forwards, lots of action in the desert. And well, it went the way of what ended up being a relatively small group. And then a photo finish between Tim Malia and Caleb Ewan that I still think is inconclusive from any of the pictures we saw on TV. I have to assume that the, the video assistant referee of cycling has better pictures to look at or more data to uh, go by because it's very difficult for many of the pictures that are in the public domain to say definitively that Tim Malia of Sudal Quickstep 
beat Caleb Ewan of Lotto Destiny. And I'm still struggling with the fact that the sponsors have all switched around in some big game of musical chairs. Throw in uh, Alpacin de Kernink and Katusha Alpacin and, and my mind is an absolute milkshake at the moment when it comes to well, the team sponsors. The, the, the stage itself was a bit like a game of musical t- chairs and some of the tactical permutations were a bit of a confounding milkshake as well. I said to you before we started recording this evening that I found it a little bit curious maybe that Sudal Quickstep were pulling behind trying to get those two big groups together when Remco Avonapool was down the road, um, albeit relatively isolated. And then I also found it a little bit strange that the two big groups were allowed to come back together with Sepkus, Jay Vine, marooned off the back. At one stage, it looked as though their UAE tour was over as far as general classification was concerned. But the teams represented in the front one of the two groups at that point were obviously not committing enough men um, to the front. And it was all able to, it almost all came back together, didn't it? But then at that point, the the group, the smaller group, which eventually yielded the stage winner, then took off. And well, a thoroughly entertaining stage, even for someone like me who doesn't really appreciate crosswinds. Crosswinds famously make you sad, don't they, Daniel? I find yes. them I find them really interesting to watch, especially when uh, you could see when the the the, sort of the pressure was on. That was you know when the groups were more likely to split. I, I, I take your point. There was an opportunity for uh, Remco Evenepoel to really make big gains, but actually, it's turned out all right for him because really when you look at the GC Remco Evenepoel uh, Peo Bilbao and uh, Luke Platt really have a kind of minutes head start on everybody else no I mean it's not a bad situation to be in is it for Sudal Quickstep they won the stage they got their GC rider a minutes head start over everybody else and there's a time trial tomorrow which uh, may well um, further swing things in Remco Evenepoel's direction I mean if you're watching in the last few kilometres, Lionel, you'll have seen how Remco at one point simply was trying to, I think, take a pull on the front and effectively drop the rest of the group, which probably gives us some indication of how he's going to ride for the rest of the week. I mean, the big the, the big point of interest as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I mentioned Jay Vine there, who has had a great start to the season with his new UAE team. That team has had a good start to the season and it's, of course, a huge race for them. So... Adam Yates has been thwarted by Tadej Pogacar each of the last two years. He's now their leader, lost time today. It's going to be really interesting to see how he goes about recouping that lost time. Lionel, that's not the official news roundup. Should we kick on with the official news roundup? Or was there something you wanted to add? Well, I was just going to ask you what you made of the Mark Cavendish case bowl. First time we've seen them riding together. And uh, they definitely did ride together, didn't they? Yeah, I think it would be a confidence boost for them, wouldn't it? It was a it was a small group sprint in the end. Cavendish only got third. They got things wrong slightly around that final right-hand bend. But I noticed in the quotes after the stage that Cavendish commented on how pleasurable it was to ride behind Caseball. Caseball, who is how tall is he? Six foot eight or six foot seven. Um and just to be sort of chaperoned by him throughout the day 
that was obviously a great help to Mark Cavendish. I think by Bowles' own admission, there's work to do as far as the actual lead out itself is concerned. I mean, people seem to have come to jump to this conclusion that Case Bowl will be Cavendish's lead out man at the Tour de France, purely, I think, based on the fact that Case Bowl himself has been a sprinter. I, I don't think that's necessarily decided yet, but a lot of positive noises coming out of Astana at the moment. And, you know, we talked a few weeks ago weeks ago about Cavendish how he would settle in seems to be going well at the moment pretty happy with his equipment I believe and um, yeah as I say I think he'll take a lot of heart from that from case, that big case test ball, six, six foot four I think but still yeah oh, big, a big man okay. oh is that all yeah no, that still all? a big I mean, man but also Cavendish um, was in the, the the back group after a bit of a mishap early on, I think, um, did he... Well, when it's first split, Bowl was in front, Cavendish behind, and uh, but they did work stone, together. Someone hit stone, I believe. Right, One of them yeah. hit a stone, yeah. Yeah, Cavendish, I think that was. And uh, they... Well, they, they definitely rode in tandem throughout the day. And uh, I, th- I just thought it was interesting that they were... Um, you know, hooked up in what was a pretty small group at the end, wasn't it? And uh, I, I personally think that's where Cavendish can get some wins. You know, he's race savvy, isn't he? You know, he might not be the fastest sprinter in the world anymore, but get down into those sorts of groups, perhaps even on, um, you know, in bigger races, I hesitate to say a little more selective, but, you know, he's he is smart. When you think back to even that Milan San Remo win years and years ago, and, you know, he won that as much with the head as with the legs. And uh, yes, yeah, certainly think, uh, early signs very encouraging for them Lionel let's sink our fangs into the news roundup proper um, the Ruta del Sol we recorded last week after Tadej Pogacar's emphatic victory at the Clásica Jaén Paraíso Interior before that was before the Ruta del Sol in which I can tell you that Pog rattled off victories in stages one, two, and four. He won the general classification by one minute and 18 seconds over Mikel Landa, and he thereby took his career victory tally to 51. The two other stages were won by Pogacar's new teammate, Tim Wellens, and on the final day by Omar Freile of Ineos, Ineos Grenadiers. They had an outstanding weekend all round. Um, incidentally, we'll hear a bit more about that in a minute. But let's just hear briefly from Pog, shall we? The winner of the Ruta del Sol. Oh, it, was, uh, it was really great. Yeah. Um, we did a perfect job through all the, the weekend. I'm super happy with uh, how my shape is, how the shape of the team is. So, all good. Uh, are you surprised with your level in the start of the season? Uh, I would, uh, yeah, maybe, yeah, with the result, a little bit surprised. But uh, I knew that my level is good. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, in this race, I felt really, really strong. And I hope I can feel as strong for the next races. So, Lionel, a demonstration, a pog cineration, 51 victories now for Pog. There were various stats um, on social media and in the press over the weekend. There's a... Uh, a stats platform software called Forty Classe, um, which works with L'Equipe. They supply statistics for L'Equipe and they published a nice infographic on Saturday or Sunday, I think it was, which showed the various ages of some of the legends of the sport when they reached that landmark of 50 victories. Um, Eddie Merckx, 23 years and four months and three days. Freddie Martin's 23 years, seven months and 15 days. They're both ahead of Pog. Pog is 24, four months and seven days he was when he he brought up number 50. But nonetheless, he's very much on pace with the legends of the sport, isn't he? 
He is indeed. I mean, the Ruta del Sol, I mean, the Ruta del Pog, really, wasn't it? Won the opening two stages, won the fourth stage. Teammate Tim Wellens, UAE Team Emirates, teammate won stage three when, well, the, that big break went. Pogacar then won the bunch sprint just because he could, I think, uh, four and a half minutes down they were. And then really on the final day, Pogacar put himself on lead-out duties for Alessandro Covey, who came up short. Omar Friley beat him at the finish. Covey perhaps left a little bit too much to do by, um, well, Tim Wellens, really. The Pog went first, then Wellens, and then Covey. Um, but really, I suppose the question is, did Pogacar sort of sandbag a bit? He could have won all five stages there. Well, it made you me not? wonder, you know, with these kind of, I'm not saying for a minute that the Ruta del Sol organisers uh, created a route that literally suited Pogacar down to the ground every single day, but it did, didn't it? And, you know, you do wonder whether that was part of the, um, as soon as the whispers were that Pogacar was looking for a different race to do in the interest of the organisers to put on a course that suits Pogacar. I mean, that is pure speculation, but he certainly made the most of it this week. And Lionel, it did make me reflect slightly on the Ruta del Sol and how much it's changed over the years. And I think this is indicative of a lot of races in the sport. And people probably don't appreciate the extent to which sprinters are being phased out of some races. Mm. The Ruta del Sol, I look back in 1997, I think it was, Eric Zabel finished first or second in every stage and he won the general classification. That was pretty typical of of a lot of those early season stage races, wasn't it? Um, the Valenciana was pretty similar. But as you say, it really did Pogacar, um, suit Pogacar, particularly the finales of the stages. But what I thought was was um, quite instructive as well was how UAE were able to control the race and basically set him up to ride the finale that he wanted to ride. And, you know, in there... A dream scenario for UAE would be that they could do something similar at the Tour de France. But I did find myself already thinking about that kind of spoiler role, or you could call it battering ram role, that Wout van Aert played at the Tour de France last year. And it often had a scratching our heads. But what it did was sort of raise the flag on the serious racing very, very early on stages. And it left Pogacar quite and UAE sort of exposed relatively early as well um, they do look stronger though this year but February is very different from July isn't it it is and it is interesting isn't it all of the talk has been about how Pogacar wants to correct what happened last year and and win the Tour de France and that was going to be the absolute focus of his season which I mean it obviously will be but he's often running very early and uh, winning very early and well looking at the sort of um, well, Bahrain victorious, second and third on the podium there with Mikel Lander and Santiago Buitrago. You know, good results, but they're kind of at arm's length from Pogacar already. And uh, that's pretty ominous for all of Pogacar's rivals, I would say. Well, the other big limb loosener as far as stage racing was concerned took place in Portugal and in the Algarve specifically. The overall there was won rather surprisingly by Dani Martinez of Ineos Grenadiers who edged out his teammate Filippo Ganna by just two seconds. Ganna was also thwarted in the decisive final day TT with Stefan Kung beating him by 10 seconds and Remy Cavagna by 4 seconds to take the stage win. Other stages in Portugal were won by Alexander Christoph of Uno X. Much more about that team in due course. Magnus Court, who won twice, and by Tom Pidcock. 
Lionel, just on that final day time trial, well, it was a bit of a bit of an upset. Danny Martinez overcoming his teammate, in effect, uh, Filippo Ganna and various others who were in with a shout. Tobias Foss was one, the world time trial champion. But I, I saw some stuff today, interesting um, little nuggets about... Well, we, we mentioned it a few weeks ago, the change in the rules, the UCI's time trial rules, and now there are effectively three categories of height, and they dictate what positions riders can adopt in time trials. And there has been the suggestion that Stefan Kung, who is, I think, in the top category, um, he's not quite as tall as Case Ball, but he's nearly as tall as Case Ball, um, he and other tall riders might benefit significantly from these rule changes. Yeah, I mean, that's long been the criticism of that rule, isn't it? That it doesn't, uh, or, you know, that it disadvantages tall riders uh, simply because they can't stretch out as much in, in layman's terms, isn't it? Um, so it'd be interesting to see what effect that has, you know, over a greater sample size than, than uh, you know, a couple of time trials. A couple of other things I noticed from the Volta Al Agave was, well, UAE team Emirates have had a lot go their way, but one thing that didn't is that Mark Hershey crashed on stage one and has fractured his right radius bone, which will rule him out for eight weeks. And obviously that will rule him out of the classics. Uh, so not everything has gone UAE's way. Tom Pidcock was relegated for pushing someone in the sprint on the opening stage, but then uh, got his victory on stage four. Really impressive finish, actually, by Pidcock. And then in the time trial, he ran off the road, did a bit of cyclocross on his time trial bike. Uh, that was quite eye-catching. And the other thing that caught my eye was, uh, well, we saw the photo finish between Malia and Ewan, which I still think you can't split them. Uh, there was a very close finish between Court and Ilan van Wilder of Sudal Quickstep. Van Wilder, I, I dread to think what Patrick Lefebvre would have made of him. I'm surprised he managed to come out for the next stage, to be honest. Uh, that's not the sort of thing that Lefebvre would be terribly tolerant of. But he celebrated too early and Court nipped ahead on the line to win that stage. Uh, van Wilder did finish on the podium, though, overall third behind Ganna and Martinez. Another stage race took place in France over the weekend. That was the Tour des Alpes Maritimes et du Var. A couple of weeks ago, we discussed how the Etoile de Bessèges had showcased a glut of emerging young talent. And it was a similar story this weekend with the 21-year-old Kevin Vauclin winning stage one. 22-year-old Mathias Skelmorza of Trek taking stage two. The slightly more senior Aurélien Paris-Peintre winning on the final day and Vauclin taking the final GC for Arkea Samsic. That was Vauclan's first win after a run of 10 second place finishes in various races over the last couple of years. He was also first, third and third in Altvar. Um, he's a name, Lionel, I think outside of France hasn't been particularly sort of hyped up too much, but he's been very, very eye-catching at the start of this season. And he's a headline writer's dream because he's from Bayeux, um, Bayeux of um, the Tapestry fame i say he's a headline headline writer's dream but i can't come up with anything good at this point well all i can think of daniel is that he stitched up the opposition there is that good enough for the oh, you wove in that reference there beautifully <laughs> very good very good excellent excellent um and Lionel, concluding the news roundup, the final bit of racing over the weekend or over the last few days, I should mention, has been happening at the Tour of Rwanda, where Ethan Vernon, who is having a very good start of the season, um, he won the first two stages for Sudal 
quick step. And any other business, Lionel? In well, the just, just before we move on to the, the main um, heart of the podcast, a corrections corner for last week's guest, Ian Boswell. I mean, if ever there is a tour of New England, let's hope that Ian Boswell is not the race director because he misdefined the states which make up New England. Lots of listeners from New England got in touch to correct us. We were us. deluged for were we, we not by we, corrections. Do you know what? It's probably the thing we've had the most correspondence about for a number of months. Um, in our defence, cycling's got a very poor grasp on geography, hasn't it really? Paris-Roubaix doesn't start in Paris. Milan-San Remo isn't even starting in Milan this year. And let's face it, no one knows where the Dolomites are. So... Um, Ian is Ian is forgiven. I also suggested the idea of teams having nicknames, completely forgetting that, of course, uh, the Wolfpack have a nickname. Uh, Sudal Quickstep are called the Wolfpack, aren't they? Didn't didn't you suggest that Movistar be nicknamed the Blues? The Blues. That, that's am right, I remembering yeah. this correctly? And I guess Jesus. Ineos Grenadiers are the are the Grenadiers, are they? Um, but uh, mm. yeah, yeah, that, that's not captured the imagination in quite the way I had hoped. The Cycling Podcast. Powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. Go to supersapiens.com because you can find out how the continuous glucose monitoring technology can help your training and performance and read some really interesting articles. There's one recently published about where to wear the sensor on your body. The approved location recommended by Super Sapiens is on the back of the upper arm, the triceps muscle. But some recent research has looked at whether it gives more accurate readings on a working muscle, say the quadricep muscle uh, for cyclists. Comparing readings from two sensors in different locations together with the readings from a finger prick blood test, researchers found that at rest, the upper arm position was closer to the finger capillary glucose reading, but that while cycling, the difference between the arm and leg sensor readings narrowed, which suggests that there may be a role for wearing the sensor on an exercising muscle. Personally, I'd stick with the upper arm location because once you've stuck the sensor on, it's out of the way, less likely to get knocked and so on. Anyway, lots of information about Super Sapiens available at supersapiens.com. Well, Lionel, um, it's about time we got on with the main event of this week's podcast. And it is an interview and it's an interview with a gentleman who might be familiar to some of our listeners and less familiar to others. They will certainly, I think everyone who listens to the podcast will be familiar with the Uno X team and they will have enjoyed and been entertained by Uno X, particularly over the last couple of years when this Norwegian-Danish team has been very prominent at the pointy end of some pretty big races. Now, the subject of our interview, our interviewee is Jens Haugland. He's the general manager, as you said earlier, Lionel, of Uno X Pro Cycling Team, men's and women's teams. And he's also the CEO of Uno X Norway, who are... Um, a company which, well, what do they what do they do, Lionel? Well, they have a, a chain of unmanned petrol stations, fuel stations. They do, 
And as far as the team is concerned, well, it's the seventh year, I think, uh, 2023 for the team. The fourth year that they've been in the Pro Continental Division. They were the fourth best team in the Pro Continental Division last year. Um, they have ambitions to be a world tour team. They've already produced some excellent riders. They had two consecutive, or they produced two consecutive Tour de l'Avenir winners. Um, the first being Tobias Foss, who is now, of course, the world time trial champion and rides for Jumbo Visma. The second being Tobias Johannesson. Um, they've also produced riders of the caliber of Andreas Lechnerson, the DSM climber, a very promising young climber. And as we said, the man behind it all is Jens Haugland. He's 38 years old and by all accounts, he is a very busy man. He's also, we learned today, quite a dynamic operator with lots of interesting ideas about how to run a sports team a cycling team, and about the sport in general, Lionel. And in his honour, I see that you're wearing a well, lovely Uno X jersey. Uh, not quite, no, but uh, I do enjoy the colours. Uh, yellow and red are a great combination of colours. And uh, yeah, I think the jersey makes them stand out in the peloton, doesn't it? That's for sure. A jersey, I should interject, that we do not know. Jens doesn't know. You won't hear this in the interview, but we did discuss whether the team would have to change its jersey for the Tour de France in July, and he does not know yet. I suspect they might have to because the top half is predominantly yellow and it will clash with the maillot jaune. I would suggest, because the corporate colours are yellow and red, maybe if they reversed it, so the top half was red and the bottom half yellow, they might might get away with it. Um, but yeah, d most teams that have predominantly yellow jerseys have to switch to something else. We've seen Jumbo Visma in recent years have switched to a Tour de France jersey way back. Onse used to do the same, didn't they, when they had a predominantly yellow jersey for their regular racing. Uh, often switched to pink, I seem to remember, for the Tour de France. Well, Lionel, without further ado, should we go back to this morning and cross over indeed to, I believe Jens was in Norway. Here we are in conversation with Jens Haugland, the general manager of Uno X Pro Cycling Team. Well, Lionel, coming in hot out of the weekend like a direct energy rider on the end of a sticky bottle at the Tour du Haut-Var. We are joined by the the manager, the head honcho of the uh, Uno X team, um, men's and women's, Jens Haugland. Jens, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I love the introduction, Daniel. I was <laughs> expecting it. <laughs> well, well, let's let's dwell on that for a moment, shall we? Um, it wouldn't, it wouldn't riders, have been bad, Daniel, if you got the name of the team and the name of the race right. Sorry, Total Energies sorry, and sorry. Tour des Alpes Maritimes et du Var, I think it is. But yes, yeah, what, what? Well, Lionel, what I do know, what I did see, and I, I can I can tell you was that um, at that particular race that you just mentioned, um, one of Jens's riders, um, Jens, you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation because my Norwegian is not that great. Odna, Adna? Oh, yeah, perfect. Odna Holter. Odna Holter was in a break with Mathieu Bergudo. And uh, Bergudo, well, he took advantage of, as I said, what? traditionally is known in cycling as a sticky bottle. And Jens, I mean, you were among several people who uh, expressed their discontent online. I mean, being serious for a moment, um, I said, what was the penalty? The penalty was four points on the 
points competition, 100 Swiss franc fine, 200 Swiss franc fine for the direct sportif. Wasn't great, was it? The penalty was no penalty. Hey, come on, it's that that's the reality here. Uh, you know, it was one of those moments when uh, when you're not in the race yourself and you you watch it on telly and you think that hmm, is this something I go out on Twitter about or, or is this something I just leave within my own heart and head? Um, but 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 this, I think it was just a, a, such a breach of of fair play in hardcore racing, uh, and it it's so obvious and. And both the rider and the DS ha- um, have the chance to correct it by, by just waiting and, and kind of searing out the situation. But they decide to just continue. And it, it, it it's for me not, it's not proper racing. And I, I'm, and I think, I, I was thinking, are we back in the 1970s or what? Because we, we, we try to get more and more professional about everything we do. And then I think it's also in all fairness we try to compete with with not using tricks not allowed in the rule book to win a, to win a race. What what it does tell us, Jens, is that you experience very vicariously everything that's going on with your team. I guess you were, were you watching live at the weekend. Of course, it's been three screens parallel because I have <laughs> a women's team in Valenciana and then Algarve and then and hot wide with with the, with the band's team. And. We know you're, well, you're a very busy guy. You've got a, a family as well. You're also, you're not only the manager of the cycling team, but you have the analogous position really in the Uno X company. Is that right? Um, well, yeah. let's, let's, let's start, shall we? Let's go right back to the very, very beginning. Um, you are from, is it a place called, again, you're going to help, help me with pronunciation. Is it, is it, it's not Trondheim. But it's near Trondheim. No, it's 300 kilometers north. So it's pretty in, in, in Norwegian, Norwegian terms. terms that's it, not far, it's, is it? It's near. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm born there uh, among uh, three um, three youngsters. Um, my dad he died when I was when I was 13. So I moved to Oslo quite early to play football. Actually, I was an okay football player. Did you not play in the talent. second division in Norway? It's quite a high yeah, level. Man, I, I'm getting worried about your research now. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah you're, you're completely right. Um, so I, I I started off with a sporting career and and then I realized that, um, yeah, I can train well, but I don't have that much of a talent. So I had to find other ways to, to make a living in my life. And, well, what was the, what was the plan A um, at that point? Because you're also, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, Cause you even more anxiety with um, by demonstrating even more of my research. Now, were you not head boy at your school or something along those lines? Lionel, in fact, Lionel was also head boy at his school, so you've got something in common. That, 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 that. I, I, I had, I had um, plan A. I, I didn't need to ask a youngster about that, but my plan A was to 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 play football. Uh, I moved from my family, my mom, in the 900 kilometers and lived in a very small apartment with no windows, uh, 20 <laughs> square meters in Oslo. Um, my mother and my father uh, are both priests, um, which is, uh, re- uh, they, they, of course, they get their salary in heaven and not, not in their <laughs> wallet, you know. Uh, so so uh, it was, uh, I would say it wasn't rough, but it was... Um, we had to. I had to work my way, um, and then uh, when I realized that uh, I, I did well in school, and I, I had some other options, I, I can also could also follow in my life. And 
and and I chose to to follow a path of of of, of schools in in both Norway and and in the UK, uh, and then I ended up in a in a big monster of a consulting house called the PwC, which I I guess you know about. You didn't fancy following your parents into the priesthood at all. <laughs> uh, everyone, uh, many people have asked me that. Um... And I, I don't think I, I ever will. I've uh, had my uh, issues with, uh, uh, with religions related to losing also my father in young age. Mm-hmm. I, I think I, I uh, when everyone then told a thirteen-year-old that uh, that God is fair, I don't, I, I didn't see the world like that. Mm. Um, and I've, I've always said when I retire, I'm going to ask those, I'm going to get answer those questions because at the moment I, I'm a bit. Uh, I'm a bit torn, to be honest, and I think it's very fair to say that. Mm. And um, you, so, yeah, you've got two brothers as well, haven't you? How, what was their relationship with religion, or what is their relationship with religion? Yeah, I have a brother and a sister. I think they're, oh. uh, I would say, the same. Um, and my, I'm very close with my brother. He's also the commercial director of the team. Mm. Um, and my sister, uh, a bit more on the dark side. I think she would agree to that. Uh, I don't see her. Uh, um, visiting the chapel every Sunday uh, morning, um, but uh, but she's she's coping with it. And but I think you know, you bring all those experiences into your backpack. Um, and we've had some rough ones. Um, and every 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 person need to kind of handle losing people in their life. Mm. Um, I've been exposed to that, and 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 hopefully it's been a strength for me. I, at least I, I I decided early to make it make sure it will be a strength. Yeah, just reading some interviews you've done, Jens, with our colleagues in Norway. Um, you, you know, you talked about how you were determined when that tragedy did strike and you suffered that trauma of losing your dad, that you were determined that it wasn't going to define your life. So uh, I come from a place where a bit about 5,000 inhabitants uh, up north, uh, very far away, I would say, from, from the big world. Um, and uh, my father, he was very interested in sports, and I, I kind of, I, I got my ambitions from from sports. Uh, and when he died, and we sold off our cabin, and uh, yeah, it was really rough. Um, mm. It felt like I, I, someone just told me, I think in my head, that this is this is not my destiny. I, I choose my destiny myself. And uh, I think I have uh, people around me will also say that I have worked very hard for it. It, it hasn't come easy, but it, it's hard, dedicated work over time. And also you need some luck and you need to handle those ups and downs. Um, it's, it's been quite a journey, to be honest, and still is. Well, talking about religion, you made a pilgrimage of sorts. And this is where the, the sport comes in, the cycling comes in. I don't know where on the timeline this is in relation to you starting with PwC. But at a certain point, 2007, you decided it would be a good idea to pile into a camper van with a, a friend or two and follow the Tour de France. Is that right? Exactly. I, um, I had already watched uh, Tour Husov in the prologue in Strasbourg. Ahead of that, uh, was it a year ahead or two years? It ahead? was. It was the year uh, ahead. Yeah, the year ahead exactly. Um, and then uh, me and my brother, my best friend, and my stepbrother, um, because my mother remarried, um, we decided to rent a um, automobile uh, for for the whole of Tour de France. And this was, you know, in the times of of who solved and and just cycling booming wild in Norway. Mm. So. 
I already had a very strong interest interest for it, but it, of course, following that that life for 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 a whole summer, it it was an experience to never forget. It was just unbelievable. Um, and you know, this was also the times where uh, oh, it was a time trial in in uh, I think it was Albis where a certain Kazakh made some interesting moves. You know, it, it was just odd because Rasmussen was up there flying of of different reasons. You know, uh, it was. There was just so many storylines, and but I kind of, you know, cycling has this very complex journey of stories, and I just felt devoted to it. Um, and uh, um, but but sitting here today, saying that we are going to go down ourselves from 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 two thousand and seven, that that is, mm. that that wasn't my thought at that time. Funnily enough, I actually covered that. 2007 Tour de France for a magazine um, from a camper van we went in a camper van too and uh, quite (laughs) quite hard to follow the Tour de France in a camper van um, every time you catch up with them they're setting off you know they're basically zooming off again I mean what was the experience like Uh, how many you know times did you manage to see the race uh, did you take your own bikes and and do some riding as well? What you know? What I mean? I guess I mean I was working, but if it hadn't been for the work, I think it probably would have been the summer holiday of my life. Uh, yeah, you, you at the uh, when you start such a, an experience, you start oh we need to see them there, there, and there, la 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 la, and, and and kind of you have these milestones in every stage, and then you realize mm, we might need to settle down a bit there. A lot of traffic, uh, a lot of mo- mountains, and then you go up to the Pyrenees and you realize, hey, this this worth staying here. I, I remember we had a couple of nights in, I think it was Guret, where it was just we were standing on on tables with uh, with Norwegian supporters and and just it was just a completely wild experience, and uh, I can't remember uh, myself being a lot on the bike uh, <laughs> for different reasons in those weeks. Because it was four four young guys just experiencing life and, and following following an amazing race. <laughs> and, and Jens, that was an interesting period because you, you mentioned the boom in Norwegian interest, but counter to that, the the sport and interest in the Tour de France was kind of cratering elsewhere because Armstrong mm. had just left the picture. The tour, I mean, you, you mentioned the scandals there. I mean, Lionel and I were both covering it back then. And it was, you know, we were following police cars. There were sirens wailing. We were spending more time at police stations than we were, you know, at finish lines. And um, and that was the case. You know, the interest was kind of waning in a lot of places. The British boom hadn't really started yet. Yet, as you say, in Norway, it was this kind of infatuation. Just talk about that a little bit. I think the... And it was well covered also in Norway, I would say, by, by TV2. They, they kind of, they, they made it their own, TV2 in Norway, of of sharing the stories of Tour de France for the whole summer. And I, I think I think as a Norwegian, we have a lot of winter sports, you know, we're, we're good in that. But we have we have kind of missed the, 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 the summer part of it. And and July is is quite open from a sporting perspective in Norway because we don't we don't tend to go to many football championships, <laughs> at least not for the men's. <laughs> so so I think I think TV two embraced that opportunity and 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 shared the story of that youngster Tour Husel going to Credit Agricole under uh, Roger Lechi, uh, and then it came with 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 uh, with Kurtos Larvesen. It came with with Edvard Boasson. And suddenly, wow! We we, we can we, we have made the transition from not only winter sports to summer sports, and this was illustrated by Tour de France. 
and that that kind of things got going, you know, and it was just uh, a very intense. And everyone in Norway, I would say, not everyone, but a lot of people in Norway talk about summer related to Tour de France. You you mm. see, you go out on the on, out in the mountains in the sea, and then you come back for to watch the last two hours of the race. Mm. I think definitely mm. Norway brought the party to the Tour de France in those years as well, when there wasn't an awful lot to kind of you know, celebrate about the race because of the, the, the doping scandals. I just remember that you would always see the Norwegian flags, big groups of people enjoying their summer holidays. And uh, it was possible to kind of transport out of, you know, the reality of what was going on the, in the race, which was pretty dark at that time, as, as Daniel says, you know, Vinokurov, Rasmussen, um, you know, it was scandal after scandal. Mm. I mean, I also yeah, get, you're you're right. I, I also get the impression that that whole idea of the summer road trip—that's something that was maybe quite ingrained in Norwegian culture. I mean, maybe because the country is so huge and so beautiful as well. I don't know, Jens. I mean, the camping car and and setting off on a big expedition in the summer—is that something that is quite a common sort of cultural phenomenon, almost? Yes, it is indeed. And uh, you know, we are we are used to waiting for for this, uh, our uh, cross country skiers in the forest for for many hours. So <laughs> the co- the co- the concept of, of waiting for bike riders in the mountain is attractive to us. Mm. Um, so there are many different explanations, but 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 all in all, it's been a, a, a fantastic journey for for Norwegian cycling and the interest around cycling the last I would say fifteen years. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. So at that point, 2007, have you, you're already at Price Waterhouse Coopers, are you? Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I guess that was the first summer I was supposed to start. I can't totally remember okay. but then i did uh did, f- did five years in pwc working my uh yeah off but uh <laughs> yeah. it was uh it was a fantastic start but you know how, the, uh, how those systems work you you don't see too much of your friends mm. <laughs> and then mm. it's is it about five years later i think about 2012 2013 where uno x the uno x company enters the the fray. Um, so, did you get interviewed for a job there? Did you apply for a job? And what it was a job as well, effectively. I mean, we know that the company has um, it's automated petrol stations, isn't it? Is it all? Have they always been completely automated? Or? I think. Uh, oh, hit. Um, I will try to not make it a commercial. So sorry about that. But I got a, I got approached by an ex partner in PwC. He was then the okay. CEO of one of the companies. And at that time, Unix was kind of finding um, its own identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was purchased or acquired by a, a, a very well-known family in Norway. We are family old uh, mm-hmm. as of today as well. Um, and uh, it was a, it has been automated petrol stations since two thousand and nine within the Unix uh, right. within the Unix brand. So then I got approached and and, and chose to to leave PwC. And you go there, well, purely in a commercial capacity at first. And it's another mm. two or three years, isn't it, before sport becomes, well, a question, a, a, a challenge, an opportunity. I believe that your love of sport was, well, it was something that your seniors effectively became aware of. And they were also parallel to that interested in investing in cycling um, with races like the Tour of Norway, Tour of the Fjords, so on and so forth. And that was the route in for the company, wasn't it? And then 
you were also sort of engaged in that. You're completely right. Um, I I have I got a very special connection, and I still have with my chairman, Birgit Kulset, and he asked me around 2013 if I want to be the cycling boss of uh, of Unix because we we wanted to start on a journey where we where we integrate sports into our brand uh also knowing that where we are today back in 2013 is not where we can be when we are looking 10 15 years down the road um because we need to move forward um and um it was just um a question I immediately responded positively to, but 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 not related to operate the team. It was re- related to to start looking into sports with our brand and cycling is a very I would say obvious opportunity uh, in particular in Norway because football and skiing is too expensive mm. uh, and you can influence a lot within cycling mm. uh, brand wise. So so that was the start point of it. And. So you said Uno X, they wanted, you know, it was a way of moving the company forward. But, you know, we see a lot of different sponsorships, types of sponsorships and reasons why companies engage. You know, sometimes it's a a CEO or a company owner who is simply very, very passionate and it can almost seem like a vanity project. Other times there's a Mm -hmm. big sort of hospitality mm, dimension to it. Other times, you know, we hear about companies wanting to create a rallying point for their employees. They want something for the employees to identify with. Well, why had Uno X, besides sort of identifying cycling as good value, why had Uno X decided to get into cycling? Uno X, sorry, I think I'm pronouncing even that wrong. No, no, I, I think we need to be honest about that because us being in cycling, it is a commercial decision of the company. Hmm. And the commercial decision of it is related, I would say, to to over a very long time share the story about a brand related to mobility. Um, we we have been accused of, with no surprise, related to to greenwashing and and elements connected to that, which I think is very fair and it's a good challenge. Um, but we we chose very early to say that we will use cycling as a, as a tool to talk about mobility in society as a whole uh, and live as I think it's and at that time everybody was laughing at us it was like oh this strange couple of guys they they have connected cycling to a fuel company and it it doesn't make sense and mm-hmm. I, I I tried to tell those stories for quite some time but now I think it. People don't ask those questions that much anymore in Norway because now they know. Um, I get a m- lot more of it from the outside. So it was a decision of making sure that we, we are telling the world about our brand. And I, I've been open about an inspiration to me, uh, one of the big inspirations, not necessarily related to the drink, but the, but the way Red Bull has embraced their brand around taking responsibility for creating their own story around uh, their brand has influenced um, me and, and Vegas thinking around the UNOX brand. Well, I was I was going to pick you up on the, the you mentioned the, the, the greenwashing. I mean, we've seen from the weekend, Total Energy is bad, UNOX good. I mean, there we are. That's, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I mean, lot, lots is said, and I've made a, an episode or two about the, the, the carbon footprint of professional cycling, but also just I wonder what our... Uh, you know the, the generations that follow us in 50 or 100 years time will think when they look back at a sport like cycling and the, the identity of some of the sponsors you know i mean um you know 
golf mm. states, petrochemicals. Um, I mean, th- this is mm. this is kind of dinosaur industries, isn't it? Or are you looking to looking mm. to the future, uh, looking to evolve beyond um, beyond just you know f- petrol as fuel? I, uh, I I love the question, and I I over, I often use uh, the same word about ourselves that that we are uh, we are at the at the moment dinosaurs, but we are also we are also serving our in Norway it's eighty five percent of the car parks still need fuels in Norway, and and we are a huge huge country with big big distances. This is it's not like you push a button today and you get to change tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It will take a lot of time. It, it it demands a lot of investments in infrastructure. And it, it, it demands a robust uh, mobility t- transition. And you can choose to be a part of that and say, speak open about it, uh, tackle those challenges that you serve, Lionel and, and others, uh, or you can hide from it. And I think as long as you stand up for it, saying that we, we want to be a part of that transition, we will make sure that we take care of what we have today. But at the same time, we will use all our investments now into the future because now 90% of the cars in Norway sold are EV cars. So, so the transition will happen. 90%? But it's not a, 90%. But you don't, it's, it's just not, it's not a red button, you know. It, it, it is, it will take time. So when I hear those like very black and white stories about what is greenwashing and what is not, I think we, it, 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 it is, I would love to, to make the headlines with a bit more of a broader perspective, which is very difficult, of course, because it doesn't sell papers. Mm. <laughs> um, so, um, but I'm, I'm very proud of being a business serving uh, our society with mobility energy. And I'm also very proud of being part of a system spending all our time now on making sure that we invest in the correct things in the future. Mm. So I guess that's my very boring, political, but also very honest answer about it. So what does the future look like? Uh, I don't want to get bogged down in the future of, you know, um, energy, but... um, See, Jens, I brought Lionel Lionel along to ask all the hard (laughs) questions. My my attack dog. Well, no, because... (laughs) No, no, because... um, I mean, we've we've all travelled around France... Daniel, I know you've uh, you've offset your carbon footprint for the Grand Tours on occasion, haven't you? By uh, by by um, paying to one yeah. of those uh, one of those, uh, I guess, charities or funds that will offset your carbon footprint. For I think we're quite aware of uh, you know the flights we take and the miles we cover on the road. I mean, certainly the very first time I kind of saw um, firsthand a team bus being filled up with six or seven hundred euros worth of fuel. I mean, that was you know two thousand and ten. Yeah, so going rate is. You know, that going rate is more like a thousand exactly. euros these days. Yeah, I mean, yeah. This, yes. this isn't, I mean, it, the way it is now is not sustainable, right? So you've got to have some kind of view of what all of this looks like in not just 50 years time, but 10 or, or 15 years time. Uh, closer to, I think in Norway, within six, seven years, the the energy sale of fuel has will be reduced by 50 to 60%. That's the reality in Norway because the transition goes that fast now with the, uh, mm. the EV cars. Um and I also think that what, what you can, of course, offset things. That that's one approach to it. But at the end of the day, what you need to do is to reduce total emission. And 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 as 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 we are and any other cycling team or business, we we need to do what we can to reduce emissions. Um. And and of course, we can just uh, imagine. Uh, I don't know. We have. 16, 17 Skodas in our system, which is not that much compared to bigger cycling teams. Mm-hmm. And in two, three years, you know, the producer, they won't offer you fuel cars anymore. So every 
every cycling team will be on the road, I think, in two, three, four years now with EV cars. And and how will be <laughs> how will that be solved? But in a in a world where we don't have the charges all mm. over Europe in 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 Hotvar or in Algarve or wherever we go. So it will be, I would say, a hectic and very interesting transition into it. And I think you guys and other uh, media and and I would get, I would say, stakeholders in total will demand this from the teams. You have Arctic Grace of Norway; they have all EV cars now in the caravan. Uh, but it doesn't take us goes as fast as we want, I guess. Mm-hmm. Did you? But I know Jens, you're a follower of football. You've talked about being. Um, inspired by Ajax Amsterdam. Jens, whenever we mention football, we lose 10,000 listeners, but <laughs> we do it anyway oh. because it's one of our only oh, frames okay. one of our only frames of reference. But at the weekend, Liverpool came in for a quite a lot of scrutiny again because I think it was last week or two weeks ago, the Premier League had a sustainability weekend. And then t- this Damn. weekend, Liverpool flew from Newcastle back to Liverpool after their game, a flight of about 40 minutes. But it's commonly happens in the Premier League there have been lots of stories like this Um, teams flying 20 minutes to games and so on and so forth The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport Science in Sport fueled by science Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the Cycling Podcast they've been with us since way back in 2016 and we're delighted to say they are supporting us for another season Now Science in Sport is trusted in elite sport not just to deliver the energy that athletes need to perform at their best, but it's trusted full stop. You may have noticed the Informed Sport logo on all Science in Sport products, and that's really important because it means that the products have been rigorously tested under a global testing and certification program for sports and nutritional supplements. And what that means is that you can be safe in the knowledge that Science in Sport products are not contaminated with any ingredients that are banned in sport. So when you see the Informed Sport logo, as you will on all Science in Sport products, you can be confident because Informed Sport continues to blind test samples on an ongoing basis. To find out more about Science in Sport and to check out the whole range of products which are designed to get you ready for your ride, fuel you on the move and then recover from your effort, go to scienceinsport.com. Jens. You talked about being laughed at for well, being a, the, the concept of being a fuel company sponsoring a cycling team. Um, mm. I, I believe you're also laughed at to a certain extent when you launched the team. So finally, you know, X decided that they wanted to get into not just races, but teams. And you ordered a whole load of bikes for the teams without any saddles, <laughs> without any saddles. Is that right? Yeah, it's right. Number one, when I launched the team, we had a press conference with one journalist in Stavanger. <laughs> uh, and and uh, number two, I had ordered Bianchi's. And, uh, I was a bit new to, to all <laughs> that part of it. And uh, my mechanic, he opened the, the, the boxes and he realized there was no saddles on it. So so that story has been kept with us for the whole for for the whole of time sounds like this, sounds this, like yeah it's correct. sounds like the sort of thing that a, a French director sportif from the 1960s would inflict on their riders. Yeah. You've got to do. You've got. To. Well, you know, as, as soon as oh, no as soon down. as you have any success, as soon as you have any success at the Tour de France, this story will be repeated and recycled ad nauseum. I'm sure. Um, but I, I guess does that does that sort of sum up does that tell us a bit about the team's humble very humble beginnings and and where you thought you were going with the project it was 2016 wasn't it yeah it was um 
I, I, and I, I, at that time, I had brought on, you know, Kurt Arslarvesen. I, I just convinced him to, to come home uh, to say, Kurt, we will reduce your travel days with 50% in, in Team Sky. I wanted to, do, to lead this project. He came with his Vespa to my head office. I had never met him before. And I said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to be a, a team between club teams in Norway and Team Joke, who is the Conte team, the best Conte team in Norway at that time. And I said, oh, this, the, he, the, he looked, looked forward to this. And, and we had booked a training camp and we had booked some bikes. And then the bikes came one week ahead of the training camp in, in, in the cellar of our headquarters. And then the mess started. <laughs> and and now and now oh, he's oh, back oh. up to the same number or more travel days than he had with Team Sky. <laughs> you, you pulled a number on him there. Yeah, <laughs> he he hates me for that. Uh, and he 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 was dark haired when I first met him, but now he's, he's uh, sorry to say, Kurtoshle, but you're turning grey. <laughs> <laughs> Just in terms of the the makeup of the team, because it is overwhelmingly Norwegian with with some Danes as well. I mean. Just even the kind of teams that have had very strong national identities have normally had a smattering of riders from other countries. I know the women's team has got um, uh, riders from other countries, mm. but that may well be because just uh, you know the, the difficulty of filling the entire roster with, with uh, Norwegian riders at this stage. But th- this looks like a deliberate choice rather than uh, just you know the only riders you could get. You, have you determined to keep the, the core of the team uh, very strongly Norwegian? Or is that something that you see evolving over successive seasons? No, I don't. And this is um, this is where I'm a bit back to Ajax. Then I'm trying. We have been honestly been trying to make a system down in, in clubs, schools, uh, a, a recruitment and academy system that feeds into the Norwegian pro cycling. Um, and I, I think that uh, at the moment we have shown that it is possible. Um, uh, we we had two world champs with Tobias and Cern in in Volongo, uh, so so we are at the level at the moment where we can compete. I, I'm not saying we're we're gonna. I know we're not gonna win every race. I know that I need to handle a lot of top tens and eight and nines and fourteens mm. in the GC races like Olegaivaltvai. But but that's our identity. It, it is our chosen path. And I have business in two countries. That's Norway and Denmark. Um, and so, so, so I, I will stick to that, and I think I want to be known for sticking to our identity, and um, I'm not going to compromise on that. And I think we have already deserved a spot in, in some of the big races, but I, I've said that I'm, I'm never going to try to get Mark Cavendish on board just to to to, to get an invite. It, it doesn't make sense from from an identity perspective. When you talk about identity Jens um, talk a bit about the identity of the team on the road as well and the way it races because you know part of it is visually you're quite striking you've got these fantastic yellow and uh, mustard and ketchup I've seen some people refer to your the color of your Uh, jerseys as but um, they've particularly last year a lot of people noticed how sort of um, how courageous your team was how aggressive um, they were the, sort of the underdogs, the minnows, if you like. If you've been unkind in, in a lot of big races, and yet they were going toe to toe with the biggest teams in the world, and um, were at least trying to. Is that a big part of your identity? And does this does that fall in as well to you know comparisons with, for example, Ajax or I don't know where else you get your inspiration in a sporting sense? But on the road, what is the team's identity? Would you say? So I I can't. By Matteo van der Poel or Wolf van der Stijn. Mm-hmm. So I, but I, I can't 
develop our racing identity. We can develop our race style. That's I would say that's for free almost, mm. especially when you do it over time. Um, and many people they also describe it as a bit naive in the peloton. We mm. sacrifice our riders too early, and now you go to the front too early, and wow, what a huge mistake you made in that final, and so on. But it 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 develops young minds, and I have a lot of young riders, and they learn from failure, and I think that they learn from racing as a team. And and you can always buy things, but you cannot buy culture. I, I've said that so many times, and I just I want to add one thing because in many teams. You said that the, the riders are important, but in my team, the staff is the mo- most important factor in the team. I want to keep my people for many, many, many years because they define our way of thinking and acting. Uh, and that goes from the bus driver to the mechanic to the to the seigneur. Um, and we have a lot of people that's been with us since we started because we are a family on the road. And all in all, we want to be known of being nice people, nice people in the bunch and nice people on the road. And, and then... After time, you, you you will get what you deserve. So what are the other? What are some of the other pillars to your team's identity? Would you say some of the the key values that you like to instill? I uh, I would say that we are not run by rules. We are run by values. That's been very clear about that. It's also ties back to the philosophy of the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are very value oriented and not rules oriented. That does not make me. Uh, I, I still know about the anti-doping violations, so don't get me started. In general, we have a very long-term view of rider development. I think that's that, that's a very important part of us. I, losing, I would say losing, Tobias Fossor, Andreas Lechnesund, Marcus Wolgård, Jonas Swedberg. And I've always said that I want them to leave with a smile because what goes around comes around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is... We have said we want to create an ecosystem for the development of, of riders from Norway and Denmark, and, and we've started on that. And we will have good years where we, where we play in the semi-final in Champions League, and you lose on overtime against uh, Tottenham, and you get totally frustrated Not about it. And... Not Tottenham, Arsenal, <laughs> maybe. Uh, <laughs> Please. What? But Ajax lost against Tottenham. Sorry for talking football. Um, and, and, and we, we don't mind don't talking about football, it. just not Tottenham, please. <laughs> I, I and sometimes you just go to the group stages, you know, and, and then you're out. This is also our team. Sometimes mm. we will have big success. Sometimes we will go and dig ourselves a deep hole. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got the, the Champions League of Cycling coming up, the Tour de France. We'll get onto that in a second. But, well, uh. mm, sort of upstream of that, you've taken this bold move of launching a very public appeal for further sponsorship funding you yourself yeah. wrote a, a blog um calling upon prospective sponsors to get in touch with you how is that going and how what kind of response have you had oh it's going well but it's very uh, it's a huge distance between writing a blog and, and signing a paper of five million mm. euros per year um so what happens when I, you I, when you sorry yes when you write that blog literally the next week do you do you mm. get emails that start sort of cascading into your inbox? Of what happened? Yeah, from betting companies, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I guess uh, it's two elements of this. Number one, it's talking about ambition. You signal the ambition of the system, and and number two, you hope that you you throw out the I don't know the, 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 in the fishing pond and, yeah. and hope that you, you get a hit um, 
but but it's not like where we need it. It's a, more about signaling and ambition of where we want to go. We want to, to play against those big players and we want someone to come on board that, that suits our values and our way of thinking. And and I also love to um, I also love to be a bit open about things in a sport where things are supposed to be very closed and secret. I, I think that it attracts me to um, to be a bit different. I'm uh, I'm not part of the the old world. The old I don't know I don't know old school shit. You know I I, I I'm uh, I'm I'm young compared to many <laughs> of my opponents. So I can use that also as an advantage. Um, I, I, at least I'm, I'm trying to. Are you saying then betting companies don't match with the with the values of the team? I mean, there'd be difficulties anyway. There'd be difficulties anyway in France, wouldn't they? I think uh, uh, gambling companies still banned from televised sports in France, I believe. So, I would. Uh, I, I know it sounds strange, and then people would say on Twitter, oh, "He's working for a petrol company," saying that the double morale buster. But, but uh, yeah, I, I don't. It doesn't make sense for me signing with a betting company. So, so I, I, that 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 must be okay to say. Um, I would try to find someone that I, I would love to find someone that's more more into sustainability now, working from a trans- transition like we are. Mm. I also approached David Lapartia actually in the in the World Tour seminar in in the end of November, saying why can't we make sustainability as a an application factor in getting the license on license on the World Tour. And he he openly promised me that it will be a, a part of the license application for next round. So uh, hopefully we can find a partner being a part of that. Hmm. Well, yes. Let's since we've mentioned the Tour de France, let's just bask in that prospect for a moment and your excitement. I presume you got the call, I believe, on New Year's Day or New Year's Eve from Christian Prudhomme. <laughs> Um, you are ah, yeah. you are going to be the first Norwegian team at the Tour de France. Um, talk to us a bit about how much you're looking forward to it and what we should expect from the team as well. I mean, we've already seen a good start to the season. Christoph winning straight away. Warren Skoll as well winning in Saudi Arabia, doing a fantastic lead out for Christoph last week. They'll be prominent, I guess, both of those in the Tour de France. Ah, uh, trick, trick question there. I oh, maybe certain, uh, yeah, maybe not. Certain's <laughs> a bit young, but Cern is a bit young. Uh, we need to make sure he get over those mountains. Uh, if he's able to do that, mm. of course, he has a very good. Um, uh, he's a very good prospect. No, uh, I, I have been open about my feelings around this. It was just a wide phone call to get. It's been a wild, uh, I would say, process starting a couple of months earlier, and and I've. I've said that I think we deserved it, but at the same time, you also have to realize how the world works. Um, we are a pro team. We are. We don't have a French, Spanish, or Italian passport. We need a bit of luck on our side, and at the same time, we we, we need to perform well to 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 get that invite. And um, when Mr. Prudhomme called me the first of January, I, I was I was supposed to pick up pizza for my kids. I just I. I laid the phone down on the dashboard and started screaming. I can just hear, uh, just hear Mr. Prudhomme laughing at the other end of the phone. It, it was an amazing moment, and it is an historic moment for for Norway and sports. Just, um, I just wanted to ask about the women's team as well because that came along at the start of twenty twenty two. I mean, how important was it to have that in place before the team got the Tour de France invite? And and do you think that in fact having a women's team uh, operating 
influenced the decision of Christian Prudhomme as well. I mean, the, I guess it's quite an important strand to the whole organisation. I think that I was always overwhelmed by the uh, attractivity of Tour de France team. I think uh, I followed the team the whole uh, race last year, and I think it was it was an ama- amazing story for us because we got the invite and ma- made sure that the women could shine uh, first uh, alone because the attention is going to be clearly split this year. Um, so uh, at least I, it wasn't a, a disadvantage. I, I, I'm not, I don't know if it, was in, if it was in favor for us, but no disadvantage for sure, but we didn't perform like we had the 17th in the GC, but we, it's not like we, we won any stage or so anything, but, but at least we, he could see that we operate the system that is, I would say, almost equal. We still have something to work on, but almost equal in both our systems, uh, women and men. And I think coming from Scandinavia, it, it's, it's an obvious responsibility. You don't just operate a men's system. You combine mm. it with, with the women's system and, and you make it a, a complete setup. It's just very natural and, and needed. Is there a lot of crossover, shared training camps, shared um, coaches, shared knowledge? Yes, getting better and better. Uh, but also it is a challenge because the maturity level of, of uh, having a six-year-old team compared to a one-year-old team, it is different. So it will take a bit more time to just make sure that we utilize all the benefits of it. Uh, but but I think we are, we, are, we are getting better and better and we have overlaps in training camps and, and tomorrow I have the big 2024 equipment meeting with, with cross teams. So it will be exciting. Jens, with all this on your plate, I suppose going back to where we started, how do you, how do you find enough time for petrol stations um, when you've got to think about... The equipment of the women's team, the program of the men's team, watching all these races, as you told us you do, your family as well. How do you find the time? Uh, the boring answer is I have a lot of good people on the bus, uh, mm-hmm. which is true. And second, I have uh, quite a few tank myself. Uh, I am passionate about, about my living. Um, I, I've always said that you can't put percentages on, on job or, or passion. And and this is a combination of those things for me. So I um it is working, but it is hard sometimes. But so far so good. I've been doing it now for all, almost ten years. So we'll see if I can survive another ten. Um the Tour de France was an addition to a bit more of a complex side of it, but uh, <laughs> hopefully it will work out. <laughs> what what does an unmanned cycling team look like? An a fully automated, a bit like a fully automated cycling team, a bit like um, direct energy at the weekend, maybe. That was quite automated. We would need a lot of sticky bottles, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, Lionel, I don't know about you, but I feel slightly overcome with guilt for taking up four more minutes of Jens's time than we said we would. Um, So at this point, I think, Jens, well, we're going to thank you very much for your time. Really look forward to seeing your guys and girls at the Tours de France this summer and before that look forward to opening weekend where i know your team has a special relationship with belgium we expect them to see them in the thick of the action oh i can't wait for the omelet man it's just off it's going to be just the <laughs> atmosphere and uh, just the signing and everything it's just um so i'm flying uh, flying out on friday evening to to make sure i get all the, the all the fun fantastic well thank you very much jens cheers guys Well, Lionel, I've rarely heard anyone so excited about opening weekend in Belgium. I mean, I know that these are are two days of racing that get 
people very um well very hyped up don't they about the professional racing season and people are in fact hyped up about these two days omelette head news blood in particular for months beforehand um they are finally opening weekend is finally upon us are you as excited as jens haugland well, I do think it is the first proper weekend of racing. I actually do think it's a little bit diminished by the fact that uh, there's no Wout van Aert, no Matthew van der Poel. Uh, van Aert, of course, won it last year. They're saving their first showdown for Strada Bianca, as things stand. Uh, well, that's the following weekend, isn't it? So Omloop Het Newsblad has sort of suffered a little bit from just that bit of competition in the calendar. Obviously, it overlaps as well with uh, the UAE Tour. So, you know, the, the dream scenario for the Belgians would to see would be to see Remco Evenepoel on the start line in his rainbow jersey. But uh, we won't see that either. But nevertheless, it's the first race of the season where somebody is joining a real role of honour in, in cycling history, I think. I think that's what sets it apart slightly. Um, without getting into a debate about whether or not the, the tour like, down under counts. You, and, yeah, I mean, you've I'm, usually uh, been a big, a big proponent of Willunga Hill being the first big rendezvous of the season. I think it, it's just that it's the first properly hard competitive race where everybody is there to race the event for itself. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that everything else is training because it's not. We've seen the way that the racing has evolved in recent years. There's no easy days anywhere now. Anyway, the reason that uh, Jens has every reason to be enthusiastic is because uh, Rasmus Tiller was sixth last year and, you know, no doubt will be one of their riders to watch on Saturday. It's going to be, yeah, slightly decaffeinated because there's no Van Aert, no Van der Poel, but Jumbo Visma still have an embarrassment of riches. Tesh Benut, Christophe Laporte, Dylan Van Bala making his debut for the team after joining them from Ineos. I mean, the three potential winners just in the Jumbo Visma team. Sudal Quickstep have got the 2021 winner, Davide Ballerini, as well as Eve Lampart and Kasper Askreen. And I thought Askreen was very strong on one of the climbs in yeah, which he's looked good so far. He has looked he's, good. He looked good in Portugal, yeah. Yeah, and so they will no doubt be wanting to... I mean, famously, they tend to suffer the yips at Omloop and make up for it at Kerner, Brussels Kerner. Uh, Greg Van Avermaet and Oliver Narsen will be targeting third and fourth places for AG2R Citroën. Perhaps a little unfair, that, but that was where they finished last year. Um, Mohoric for Bahrain Victorious, worth watching out for. And I think that the Ineos Grenadiers team you know this is a real nucleus of a very strong classics team isn't it tom pidcock jonathan narvaez michael kwiatkowski luke rowe magnus sheffield and ben turner uh, and then there's a few kind of freelancers jasper stoyven tim wellens in good form we know arno de lee added to the start yeah. list for them i thought he would focus more on kerner brussels kerner which does suit the more sprinter riders but de lee obviously has more strings to his bow and uno x of course alexander christoph you know, classics rider with a fast finish and uh well the course it appeals to the traditionalists 12 climbs on the menu and that old-fashioned tour of flanders finish where they go over the moor capel moor and then the bosberg and then the f- run into ninova and let's not forget there's the women's race as well and then on the sunday kerner brussels kerner and there's also the junior race which has got a huge number of british riders in it including Ben Wiggins, son of 2012 Tour de France champion and multiple Olympic gold medalist Bradley Wiggins. 
I know just on the men's race, a couple of other names are thrown into the mix. I think Niels Pollitt has looked very good so far this season. Stefan Kung as well, we mentioned, he won the time trial in Algarve. One team that hasn't had a win yet, although it's bound to change hours within hours of us putting this podcast out, um, Alpacin Phoenix, but they have got Søren Kraut Anderson, who has switched teams. He's gone from DSM to that team. Interested to see how he gets on there. And you mentioned Wellens. It's always been intriguing to me how... Omloop has sometimes been quite kind to riders that you don't necessarily think of as uh, as sort of quintessential cobbled classics riders. We've seen people like Dylan Turns go well there before, and Tim Wellens. You wouldn't necessarily class him uh, as uh, the sort of big seventy-five kilo typical. Um, Flanders style ruler but he is clearly in excellent form so I'll be intrigued to see how he goes this year but that's coming on Saturday isn't it Lionel and we'll be back we'll be back I think on Monday next week or pretty soon after and the curtain has come down on opening weekend we will indeed yeah we'll unpick both races from the weekend and wrap up the UAE tour, which also concludes at the weekend with, uh, well, whoever manages to challenge Remco Evenepoel on those two uphill finishes. Will, will anyone manage to? So you were going to play us out with a, your karaoke rendition of Take On Me, Lionel? No? <laughs> no, absolutely not. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burney.